Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Herbert Kane podcast. And for those of you that are new here, my name is Simon Osimo, and you can join me for weekly conversations with some really interesting people as I explore their personal stories, transformations, and experiences that help educate, inform, and inspire. Now, in today's episode, I'm joined by Denise Costa. Now, Denise has spent the last 30 years focused on violence prevention and is a graduate of the Gavin DeBecker Threat Assessment Academy. Now, Denise runs a successful consulting company in Canada called Costa Associates, where she helps organisations address risk management. In today's show, she shares her experiences working in the security field and how the death of one of her patients at the hands of a domestic abuser changed Denise's life forever. But before we dive into this week's content, I want to remind you that you can listen to this podcast wherever you consume your content, and the video can be found on our YouTube channel at Simon Osmo. Now, if you get something from this conversation or believe that others will, it would mean the world to me if you would like and share with your circle of influence. Okay, so let's dive into this week's conversation with Denise Costa from Costa Associates Consulting. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Herbert Came podcast and really excited today to be joined by Denise Costa. Denise, how are you doing today? I'm very good. How are you? I'm very well. I should say, Denise, I'm coming off this interview, but I've interviewed an Australian, uh, a Scottish guy, um, and now you're up in Canada. So I'm taking um, who I became around with different continents, right around different countries. I'm enjoying it. You're taking a tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we're pleased for, um, you know, thank you for joining me. And I should sort of start off with a bit of your, your bio and, and introductions to who you are. And, um, you know, your background is all within sort of, um, it started off in elder abuse, but there's so much more about sort of um, vulnerability um, that covers that. And part of it is that, you know, you've worked in the field of violence since 1985. So we should sort of start off there. And really your journey in and around sort of violence started with the tragic death of an elderly client. Um, and that sort of was, was one of the stepping stones that made you create Costa Consulting Associates in, in 1994. Uh, and, you know, your work has evolved from elder abuse and advocacy um, to training organisations around inappropriate behaviour by people in the workplace to include identification, assessment, investigation of workplace bullying, harassment and elder abuse. Um, and, you know, you hold so many industry certifications. I can't list them more. I was looking at your LinkedIn page and it was going down and down and get down. But, you know, some of sort of big ones are you're a certified workplace violent threat specialist. Uh, you've atten- attended the internationally known Gavin DeBecker Threat Assessment Academy in California. Uh, and then prior to starting your own consulting um, company, you worked as a program director in community health um, where you managed a multidisciplinary team of medical, nursing, and social service professionals. And also, you're the author of those that are watching in video, um, you're author of the book, Refusing to Accept um, the Unacceptable. So, Denise Costa, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. And now, when you hear me go through your resume there, does it sound like there's, there's been a lot of time which has passed there, Denise? Well, a lot of time when I when I looked at uh, the fact that it's 35 years, that um, I thought was an error. I thought it was a lot less, but then sometimes it feels like a lot more. But um, yeah, it's been it's been, been an incredible journey over the last 35 years, starting in my 20s and working its way to, I'm um, hopefully for the next 35 years. Well, and that's great, you know. And I started off. I, I heard you on a podcast, and 
you know, this field is quite heavily male-dominated. You don't find too many females within this world, and maybe we can sort of get into a bit later as to, as to why that is. Um, you know, and a lot of the things that you said fascinated me, and then, you know, we spoke and you sent me your book and I read it, and I've just been... You know, I must say, I'll sort of start off with an early plug about, you know, your refusing to accept the unacceptable for me is really just chart your 35 year year journey. And I've got so much from from reading it. And it's been one of those books I've been struggling to struggling to put down. Um, so, you know, it's really good, really good that you can share your story. But maybe start off, Denise, just telling us a little bit about, you know, what you do with your consulting company uh, and just, you know, some of the things that you've done within sort of threat management and sort of working within um, um, sort of vulnerability and, and abuse. Well, my company began as working primarily in the area of elder abuse uh, in in education, training. Um, it then became uh, doing working with people about how to deal with difficult and aggressive clients because it's not just, um, you know, a one, a one, um, direction process when you're dealing with individuals. Uh, not that abuse is ever acceptable, but individuals that that were working in the workplace, particularly when I was working in long-term care facilities, hospitals, they would say to me, you know, yes, we absolutely must treat the residents or patients with respect, but what about us? What about um, you know, the things that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis from being inappropriately touched, name called? Um, racism then and racism now is alive and well, and what staff have to contend with is just is just un- completely unacceptable. Uh, so I started managing and dealing with situations that were not just, you know, sort of staff to the public. It was then public towards the staff, dealing with combative behaviors, aggression, fell out of the area of just elder abuse and was dealing with clients and such. And that then has escalated into, um, you know, the whole area of workplace violence, dealing with issues of in, either internal or external discrimination, harassment, bullying in the workplace. Um, the education is still a component of my work, but now with technology, internet, that type of training, um, a lot of that is done internally. But um, a big focus on on my work is uh, workplace investigations, be it on patient resident abuse, or primarily now it's it's internal um, workplace bullying, either with um, by management towards staff, manager to manager. Uh, and then on, on top of that is has been the sort of newest complement to, to my work has been um, becoming a certified threat assessment manager, which is really um, being able to assess threats either internally or externally and creating plans to to manage um, that threat within the workplace. Yeah, you know, I started off by saying that, um, you know, you don't find too many women in sort of the threat assessment sort of world. And it can be sort of perceived to be like a sort of a male-dominated environment. I know when me and you spoke and I was doing some of the research for that, I don't know if your view has since sort of changed, but, you know, what do you, when you look at your list of qualifications, I know that, you know, you're, you're a stereotypical um, sort of person I'd like to interview, but you have just incredible drive. Um, do you part feel that part of your um, need to keep sort of working hard is also tied into, you know, most of the people that you work alongside are men and you've got to, you've got to prove yourself? You know, see if your answer's changed, Denise, now for when we spoke. Oh, we'll see. I did actually say you made me think about that one. I think that my drive is is innate. I think my drive was the drive that I was given particularly by my father, that I could be and do anything regardless if I was female. 
um, or not. And I think that um, as I grew within my career, I, I think the more you know, the more you realize, the less you know. And so for me, education has always been extremely important. And Not I, true. you know, I read at three in the morning, I'm reading articles. I once in a while get to read something that's fiction, but generally I'm, I, I seek information. I think that the, the female piece of it, um, again, after speaking with you, um, I have been, you know, people have made comments more around more stereotypical comments such as, oh, you must be afraid being a woman and doing that work. And I think, well, if I think about that too hard, just as as a yeah. lot of people that, that work in different industry where there is a threat involved, I, I don't think about it. But um, I, think in, I, I think in retrospect or thinking about my um, being a female and, and mostly a male-dominated, I think it, it has been a challenge. Um, I have had... Um, um, people that have maybe questioned my abilities. Um, and, and I think that the education piece, I think I'll always continue that. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's immediately linked to the fact that I am female. Uh, but when I have been, as you mentioned, the Gavin DeBecker training or different things that I've been involved with in, in events, I have been primarily, you know, one of the only women um, that, particularly do this work. I know that in, in the States, there's there's more women that are involved, particularly in threat assessment, because I think in, in Canada, it's not as, um, it's not as focused upon, at least, at least in the public eye, it's not as focused. So I think people still aren't quite sure what actually threat assessment work is and, and, yeah. and, and who is actually qualified to do that work. Yeah, it's still quite a new industry in, you know, many parts of the world, isn't it, around threat assessment? Here in the US where I am, you know, I mean, everyone has, you know, large organizations have threat assessment teams and staff and workplace yeah. violence is very big. So, you know, and I want to move on to your um uh, you know, book uh, for a second. And I, you know, as I was reading, I was writing down some some quotes which sort of fascinated me, um, mm-hmm. you know, about you and your background, because knowing that you've got 35 years, you know, in threat assessment. Um, you know, there was things in there which sort of struck me, and one of them was that you said that you were unaware, growing up, you were unaware of classism, racism, sexism, inequalities. And I wasn't too sure in the tone whether this was perceived to be a sort of a bit of a bad thing. But, you know, you know, part of my background is working in law enforcement, sometimes having that sort of naivety to the world. I actually, I quite like that because the world is a sort of a hard place and stuff. So I guess, you know, it must have affected you because you put it within your book, Denise. But, you know, how do you think that your parents managed to achieve this? Because, like I said, I, I think that's quite a good thing that you didn't know of the, the sort of the harshness of the, of the world at that age. I think I knew of the harshness. I didn't see it in the same light. Um, I think that had a lot to do with just exposure of where I was brought up, the the, the neighborhood I was in. Um, this was back in the you know seventies. Um, there wasn't a lot of of a lot of exposure, I would say, to that. And then when I was a student in university. And I, I moved into doing a placement is where I sort of began my career in a very low-income, high-need area in, in Toronto. And that is what 
just, I think it was the exposure. It wasn't that anyone was hiding anything. I certainly didn't live in a fantasy world by any means. I did see sexism. I did see um, poverty in the sense that, you know, the few children that went to our school that were not um, from the neighborhood, so to speak, that they were treated differently. Um, diversity in regards to background was not huge where I was brought up. And then, but again, I don't know if that was the sign of the times or whatever it may have been, but when I had exposure to that, it just opened my eyes to the reality of, of this isn't right, that people aren't being treated the same. Yeah, and it was so interesting. I don't think it was, sorry. No, I was it's interesting because that does tie into a second quote that I sort of read in your book when you said that, uh, you know, and this is starting to talk about you working in threat assessment now and sort of more sort of elder abuse, but you said that you're exposed to individuals who are not only victims of society, but further victimized by others. Um, so I guess what was the, um, how quickly did you become hardened when you start to work in, in threat assessment to sort of come up with a statement like that? Because that, that is very true for anyone who's worked in into the public service knows that, you know, there are those that are victimized by society and they're also victimized by others. Can you define hardening? Yeah, as in just, yeah, well, you know, when we start off by saying that, you know, you, you grew up in, in areas that didn't have sexism or racism and classism, you know, not that you were naive to the world, but you, you were sort of maybe sheltered could be more, more of a, a term, you know, you hadn't seen the harshness. So, you know, when did you sort of start become hardened to see that people were victims of society and also they became victimised by, by others? I saw that within like immediately when Days. I started. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I could have led you into that question, but I thought I see what Denise says, but you know, it is true. Yeah. It's, within days of working in public service, you see how bad the world is. And, and, and that was the unfortunate reality. And that's what I think was my drive to continue to, to learn more and, and be part of a wonderful, diverse community that, um, and when I was working with older adults that were from, you know, had like exposure to being abused by either a family member, a service provider, um, you know, a stranger that for me, it was new. And it was something that I don't know if I'll ever be hardened to it in, in the definition of hardened to me. But I think that I definitely realized it very quickly in, in, in my university years. And then yeah. as, as up till today. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things which, again, you know, really interested me, I, I could relate and connect to a lot of the stuff that you're saying within your your book, you know, but I know that when you got in this world that people became more open, perhaps, to talking to you about things going on in their own your own lives. So, you know, as just as a, a friend or a woman, perhaps, you know, people wouldn't tell you some of their brokenness, but when they knew you started to get into sort of threat assessment and working, those, working with those that are vulnerable, you started to hear more. And I know there's a story in there that there was a... A woman in her 70s was having to pay her son um, so she could see her own grandkids. Uh, you know, a woman, 89, was raped by her son-in-law. And there was a 75-year-old man whose apartment was taken over uh, sort of by, by drug dealers. You know, so when, you know, you, you're starting to see now that the sort of the roughness of, of society. And no, they say, I'm a former cop. They say, you know, cops have sort of dark humour. Um, but I guess, you know, what was your coping mechanism very early on for dealing with the brokenness that you were starting to, to see and people were now telling you? I think at the beginning, it was it was definitely a challenge for me to, 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 to not react to that, to not 
you know, want to fix everyone and, and tell everyone what they needed to do, that I had to learn that you have to provide people with options and life choices are life choices. Um, although I knew that um, it was something that I couldn't just let rest, I couldn't walk away from. It was something that I, I knew that I, I had to try even in the littlest steps to make a difference. And that's when with those cases that you just described, I, I took the, that information and I, I went to my employer and I, I created myself a position, which was at that time dealing with abused elderly, because back in the 80s, that was not an issue, at least in Canada, that was openly discussed either in long-term care or in um, it, within communities. So for me, it was this, this has to be dealt with. How is this issue not being dealt with? And, and that sort of created that path that I ended up taking. Yeah, and I guess, you know, as we sort of um, sit here today talking, you know, 35 years later, you know, and there's a lot of information in your in your book. Like I said, it's really, you know, it charts your career. Is there anything that you hear now around sort of not just elder abuse, but around sort of mental or physical abuse that really shocks you? Or do you sort of believe, you know, that you've heard you've heard most things? I'm shocked every day. Yeah. I really am. I think that everybody says, oh, you must have heard everything. And just when I think I've heard no, no. everything, I get something else. I always tell people I don't wake up with this hair. This is after a few emails. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I was like, whoa, right? And, and it, it, the reality is that, that every, um, every case is different. Every, um, I don't compare people that one person's situation is worse than the other. Um, name calling and and uh, I, uh, social isolation at work can be as as have as much impact on an individual than someone that's thrown into a, a set of lockers in the staff room. So yeah. I, I try not. I'm I try extremely hard not. I non judgmental. It's like it's people's stories, which, as I said in the book, it's not not my story to tell and it's not me to be able to say one situation is worse than the other um although i've seen some terrible terrible things and heard some terrible things and i've lost clients that are people that i've worked with through taking their own lives i've seen people that have had you know either starting on their career in the middle of their career ending their career that ended up with you know having um mental health or physical health breakdowns because of how they're treated. So I, I think the day I get, I'm not shocked is the day that I need to stop doing this work. And I, I, I think that that, uh, let's call it the drive of shock is what for me, unfortunately is what sometimes makes people move towards trying to make a difference or making something stop. Yeah, but to me, every small incident is relevant to whoever's experiencing that. Yeah, and it's very true because, you know, in these type of fields, um, particularly what you do in sort of uh, threat assessment, you know, you, you can't you can't undo what you've seen. And the problem is, you know, one, once you've seen it once, it becomes, you know, it just becomes the norm. It is a, it is a challenge to sort of to look at the world again with, with that naivety. That's why I said when, you know, when I read your your book and you said that, that comment, I was like, that, that is a nice play, place to be. And, and I sort of, I would like friends and family to try and remain in there in that sort of maybe not a naive state but just you know you know um, knowing that the world is a good place because you know there is a lot of there's a lot of dragons out there that are, are trying to slay people but it ties maybe links in nicely then um denise to 
uh, you know, as a young 20-something, when you're going for your training, there was a significant incident that really sort of changed your um, changed your path and trajectory, if you like, and that was the death of a woman called, called Norma. Do you, want, do you want to share that story? Yes, Norma was a woman that I had um, met through my, um, my place of employment. Um, my job was to go and assess the health and, sa- the health and social needs of, of seniors in the community. Uh, I received a referral regarding a client um, named Norma, who was uh, in need of a shopping service, although I was then focusing on the elder abuse um, aspects of trying to support people that were in either abusive or neglectful situations. I still had the job of assessing health and uh, health needs and, and sort of doing the um, assessment of new clients. And through meeting Norma, um, Norma didn't have a phone, low income, um, very um, tragic circumstances that she lived in. I met her and I had uh, provided her with information regarding services. Uh, but the moment I walked in her door, uh, I knew that there was something terribly wrong in that situation and, and soon learned or figured out that she was in an abusive relationship with her um with her husband, um, it, it became a. It was a domestic violence situation that had grown old. They had been together for several years, um, many, many years, fifty years, and uh, it got to the point where I was visiting Norma every day because of the abuse that she was experiencing. I kept, a, you know, asking her, please, you know, let. let I'm going to try to help to get you out of the situation, but she was very um, adamant in the fact that she was going to stay in that environment. Um, She was diagnosed with terminal cancer. A few years into me working with her, um, she ended up in the hospital with a broken arm, um, disclosing to me that her husband had broke her arm. Again, I might not have been professional, but I, I was really trying and maybe pleading with her at certain points to just, you know, don't go home, let's go somewhere safe. She decided to go home. A month later, she was back in the hospital with her other uh, arm broken. Um, ultimately, she decided that she wanted to um, go to long-term care. She wanted to die in peace, being terminally ill. She wanted her husband to be accountable for years of abuse. Um, he was arrested. Um, he was let out that same day, went to the hospital, apologized to her. She called me and said, I've changed my mind. I'm going home. Um, dropped the charges, and back then, um, that was the situation that that could that still existed. Uh, I asked her if I could see her husband to set up services before she went home. I went and saw the husband. Went back to arrange all the services uh, in place to make her as safe as possible. Now that he had, you know, a criminal charge, that you know the. Um, more eyes would be on her in regards to um, trying to keep her safe. And ultimately what ended up happening is she was discharged from the hospital. I was sick that day that uh, she ended up being discharged. And I got a call from the police to come and identify her body that uh, her husband had beat her to death um, when she came home. And for me, that was, and I still every day and, as as I call her my my guardian that drives me to do the work that I do because that situation was so incredibly tragic. 
she didn't receive respect in life and she didn't re- receive respect in, in death. And I think that that knocking on Norma's door that day absolutely changed my life and is the reason I'm sitting in front of you right now. Yeah, and it's, I can remember when you first told me that, Denise, and I mean, it's a, a very powerful uh, an impactful story just to just to listen to it and, and hear you tell it and you know I know that changed everything really about your your life and I know you know Norma I sort of wrote down some of the, the, the quotes and things that she said and you sort of recorded me in your book but you know one of the ones which was significant for me was when she said that I was raped and beaten as a child I was raped and beaten as a woman I'm raped and beaten as an old lady this is just my life you know she'd really sort of um, become uh, just sort of resigned to the fact that this is just what her life was going to going to be like. So I mean, when you're, you know, you're still in your twenties at this point, Denise, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're hearing this, I mean, um, how do you how do you try and process that when you've got someone in front of you that you want to help and they're just saying, well, this is just this is just me, right? I've just got to put up with it, and you know, and eventually, you know, either he'll kill me or, or I'll, you know, I'll just die. I mean, you know, how, how do you process that type of uh, maybe attitude when, when you want to help, you want to do more and get them out of a situation. It must be quite frustrating sometimes. It, w- it was very frustrating um, in the sense that I felt helpless and I felt, you know, live and learn as when you're younger, you want to, you know, save the world and give Change hope the where there's none. Yeah. And um, I had to realize that I, I had to, my job was to provide options, not make decisions. And by me trying to make decisions for her, was actually victimizing her in another way, even though the intention was was pure. So um, I think that processing it was her death was extremely difficult because for years I blamed myself in the sense of you know I should have done more, I could have done more, um, you know, or why did you know why did this end up happening? Um, I, 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 it took me a very long time to process, process that. And at the time, um, at the time that that occurred, I was married and my, my husband was a social worker and my, my husband, um, was very good at being able to process some of the issues that I was, that I was having to deal with at the time of, of just, being able to say you did your job, you, you can't take responsibility for the death that someone else caused. Yeah, and I know you know very similar. I've not told you this story before, but um, or when when we spoke, but very similar to you. I was in my sort of young twenties as a as a police officer, and there was a family always in domestic um, abuse, and you know I went round there as one of those where I knew what was going to be the outcome, and sadly it did happen that the husband actually went on to murder the wife, um, and I don't necessarily. Um, feel what I could have done more I feel what I, I did what I had to do but it was difficult always leaving thinking the next time I come is it going to be for the fact that he's murdered her you know and it was it was really similar to it's very hard to process so, so I know the position that you you've been in and I know um, there was a an interesting um, sort of twist of this story that on the morning um of Norma's death was actually a another person that was in sort of social services actually had the opportunity to to intervene and um, maybe sort of tell us a bit about that Denise. Well one of the things as I mentioned um, in, in, in Norma's story was the fact that I had met with the husband to put services in place to make sure she's safe when she was home and 
um, when she did arrive home, um, there was some kind of an altercation with her and her husband. And at the same time, a service provider came in to do an assessment so they could provide the specific service. And at that point, when they had they had entered the apartment, the apartment was trashed. Um, the husband was drunk. There was food and and up thrown all over the place. The furniture was turned over, and the person ended up leaving, um, saying, again, this is what I'm hearing after the fact, that um, they came at a bad time. And although I had I disclosed the situation of Norma in regards to, you know, the, the, the background of, and because it was risk also for another worker to go in there. Yeah. And this, the, the fact that the worker didn't call me, didn't call, well, call the police first because of the situation, call myself, call the housing authority and say something terrible, terribly wrong here. Um, they didn't arrive. They didn't call. Norma was, was killed. And when they did arrive, uh, Norma back with their supervisor, uh, Norma was being removed uh, from the apartment in a body bag. Um, and that was one of the things that I just, I, I couldn't comprehend that somebody wouldn't have did the right thing. At just picking up a phone might have saved her life. And that didn't happen. And that's when I got very um, proactive in, in my advocacy work and said, I need to get a group of professionals around a table to say, why did this happen? This is not just happening to Norma. This is happening to probably at this dozens and dozens of people that I had met over the course of the time that I knew Norma, um, probably well over a hundred for, for certain that had been elderly and experiencing abuse. And uh, I couldn't in my brain put the pieces together to say, why is this being allowed to happen? Um, and I also I also thought of the neighborhood that it had occurred in and had it occurred in another neighborhood. It might have been the front page of a newspaper, but in Norma's situation, it was towards the back of the newspaper. And a very small article that said this this woman was uh, was killed. Yeah, and it's you know I mean I could tell just by reading your book that it was um, of great significance to you, and you put an Albert Einstein quote in there that I'd not heard before, and it was yeah it's really profound. It said the world is a dangerous place not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. Um, and it was you know and I could just tell it's obviously affected you, and that is the hard thing, isn't it? So I mean, you know, that obviously changed your views on the system that you wanted to change, did it change your views as how you perceived um, sort of um, co-workers or other people within sort of social services in that type of work? I don't think so. I I, I mean, obviously, I had thought the individual, because we can't paint a brush and say that everybody within a certain organization or a certain profession is, 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 is paint it with the same brush as someone that was not reactive. That person that was not reactive, that was their responsibility. But for myself, I think it was around, at least in Canada or Ontario at that time, there wasn't a lot of information. Uh, the first Ontario study on elder abuse was done in uh, 1990 by Elizabeth Podnix. It wasn't that long ago, if you think about it. Um, yeah. Abuse has been, abuse of the elderly has been around for years. I think that people just didn't, I, 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 it's hard to say, but I, all I know is when I brought the group of professionals together 
and we I created a downtown um, elder abuse network is when people were very interested and then it started to gain where people were coming to do casework together and talk about issues and it was kind of just bringing it out to the forefront um, that I, I, I think was was the important part as opposed to judging people for not knowing what they don't know. It's one of these things that 35 years sounds a long time, but in actual fact, you know, the sort of the advancement is most probably small steps. Even when we started saying, you know, that some countries don't see threat assessment as a big thing right now. And, you know, and depending where you are in, in the sort of world, depends how people sort of take it seriously. But, you know, for someone that's dedicated their entire life um, to sort of live in the honour of Norma, you know, is it hard for you to think that in your lifetime you might not get the system to where you want it to, to be? Well, I certainly don't think that I'm going to uh, see the, the change that I would like to see, <laughs> which would be equality and a abuse-free living and working environment. I don't think I'll see that. But to me, every small step that individuals can take towards that goal Um I don't see, I, I see some closure um, with some situations, a lot of situations I don't see closure when I do workplace investigations and, um, you know, I file a report, I don't know what's happening to individuals. I don't always see the end result. Um, and that sometimes I find really curious or I think about people or I hear later on that something, um, you know, tragic happened to somebody or somebody as my book says, the triumphs, there are, you know, yeah. where people are made accountable. And um, it was interesting. I just actually met somebody um, within the last two weeks that I had did an investigation about 10 years ago in a workplace um, discrimination um, investigation. And I met this person in, in a different workplace. I didn't realize who this individual was. And they said to me, do you remember when you did that investigation? And I connected the dots because I remember yeah. faces, but not necessarily every single case. And this individual said to me, you have no idea that you you saved my life. And for myself, and now I'm even feeling it right here, right now, because it just happened a couple of days ago. And I thought, wow. So once in a yeah. while, just to hear that, thank you. Um, I made a difference. I think my work does a difference. I think everyone that works in the profession makes a difference, but you don't always realize it and you don't always see that that closure or that end result. So I won't see that in my lifetime. Well, and I know, I don't know, um, hopefully your, your, your son is still there, otherwise it's going to be an outdated statement, but I know that your son has got involved as well. So, I mean, that, that's another area where, you know, the, the legacy is moving um, sort of through you. You know, I didn't say that question to sort of really trip you up, but it's, it is when you dedicate your life to something, it is hard to see that you might not get the change in the system. But, you know, your, I know your, your son um, supports you in some of the work that you do, so it's great that that's been able to carry on. He can carry the torch um, when, when you do decide that you, you've had enough of this crazy world in, in threat assessment yeah. and stuff. Another interesting thing that I, I got from uh, your book and, and from um, more so from talking to you last time is that I know there's been a couple of uh, occasions 
Um, and hopefully this comes across as as, as being um, as being right and sincere. But you know, there, there was a time when you were sort of uh, the victim of either you know um, sexual misconduct or sexual assault by you know uh, sort of someone in the medical profession, but also within within the workplace. And I know there was one particular example, and I said, I can't remember if it was in your book or your time with Denise, but you said that, you know, a man was making unwanted advances towards you. Um, you got the courage to tell your manager who was, was female. Um, and then she sort of agreed and said, yeah, I think this, you know, this guy's a bit strange as well. And, and I've seen and, and been a victim of some of that, that stuff. And then you made the comment saying, should we go to like the, the senior manager or the bigger boss? And then what the female said sort of almost shot me where she said, well, um, don't be so naive, Denise. Why, why would we do that? That's just, for, that's just the way it is. Um, and the reason why I said that is one, it's just a fascinating um, story surrounding that, you know, that there has been a time when women have felt they couldn't speak up and, and do that with all the Me Too sort of movement. Um, but then also it reminded me a bit about Norma when you were saying that, when Norma was saying, well, I was beaten as a child, I was raped as a woman, you know, this is my life. You know, perhaps do you think we all have a bit of that defeatist attitude in us, Denise, that we've got to sort of snap out of as in, well, it's too challenging, you know, that, that's the way it is. A, a man can be inappropriate to a woman in the workplace and there's nothing we're going to do, so, so why, why report? I think there'll always be that, regardless if it's a male-female issue, if it's a, a subordinate and a manager, you know, situation where someone is being sexually harassed or discriminated against work. There's a lot of that's a, there's a lot of things that people have at stake, and I think it's very easy to say. Um, you know, as they say, be that back quarterback to say, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, it's a lot easier said than done. A lot of individuals that are mistreated either in their own lives, uh, personal lives, or professional lives. I mean, we all have vulnerabilities. There's single parents. There's people that are, um, we're looking at a pandemic right now where people have are losing their homes. Their domestic violence is going through the roof. Um, individuals can't quit their job because they 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 have to make an income. They have children that now they don't know what to do with because the schools are being closed. So I think that we can feel defeated. And there's times when I absolutely think, oh my, why am I doing this? Um, or I, you know, I'll file a report to say somebody was sexually harassed or someone was discriminated against. And I find out either you know, indirectly or directly that the individual that, that was responded in the case is still working there. And the, the, the victim of that behavior is now home um, on long-term disability and will never work again because of their mental health issues that they have now have to contend with as a result of that um, situation that they were involved with, with just wanting to go to work and make a living. And now they're on disability because of it. That's sometimes when I go, but then you just got to get up yeah. the next day and say, you got to, you got to keep moving forward. Yeah. And you know, it is just, it's just a, a, a fascinating um, topic. Like I said, it's one of the reasons why I can't, um, I don't think I've ever spoken to someone so much when I mentioned their book, but it is, it's fascinating to me. I really can't put it down. And, uh, and um, you know, one of the things that I know you shared with me when we spoke was um, not only did I sort of um, say, you know, I said I say this in a respectful way, but most people that work within sort of threat assessment, risk management and security, you know, tends to be a male-dominated environment. But it is a, you know, it is a very risky 
um, career that you have, particularly when you're working with people that are vulnerable, it generally means that there is a, an abuser that can see you as a person who's sort of getting in the in the the middle of their their offending. And I know that you told me of a story where you know you have had a stalker before, and you have seen scrape marks down the sort of the, the, the door of your of your home. I mean, how how do you feel in the work that you do? How safe do you feel? And then how does that affect you, Denise, in your day-to-day life? Um, again, I, I, I try not to to think too hard about things. I think that I'm I'm very I'm very cautious. I'm I'm um I I try to deal with situations with safety first. Um I've been a single mom for 20 years and I very much make sure that I keep my my home and my my son as safe as I can so it's it's always in the forefront of my mind but I also realize that I can't overthink it because I think if we overthink anything again just to go back to our present situation with COVID people are like I can't leave the house I can't do this I can't do that because people are so afraid I think with with the world that I work in, um, all I can do is the best of my abilities to, to keep myself safe. And um, ultimately, I think there are people that see me as somebody that's taken something from them. For example, yeah. someone has sexually harassed someone at work and they've lost their job and somehow it turns to be the investigators. Like she's the person who got me fired when actually... I had nothing to do with that whole process because that their behavior is what got them exactly. Fired. I mean, yeah, they they put themselves in that position. You would just, you know, the sort of the tool or the means to make sure that justice or the right thing occurred. But you know, and I know on that, um, I don't want to keep coming back to that particular example. But you know, when you're finding, you know, you feel like you've got a stalker. Um, you know, you're finding handprints on the, the sort of windows to your sort of patio and stuff. I mean, it must, there must resonate thinking, is this someone from six months ago? Is this 20 years ago? Is this 35 years ago? You know, like I said, you know, you don't want to walk in, walk in fear, but um, are you always sort of overtly cautious? How would you describe how you live your life as a result of doing this type of work? Well, I think that the, the situation that you're, you're talking about with the, um, the stalker and the 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 scrape on my um, frosted windows that someone had tried to look in after it's been covered. That was last summer, and that absolutely that that one shook me shook me to the core a bit. Um, particularly because I travel a lot, so that's always been a concern of mine because I'm not at my home, um, and you know my neighbors sometimes go, "Wow." we don't want you living next door because when something happens, I have to tell them, be careful or, you know, if you see anything yeah. or whatever. So, um, you know, certain things shake me more. And I think that, that um, I can tend to just say, okay, I'm not going to think about it, put it on the back burner. Um, because if I overthink it, it it's not going to be good for me. Um, so I have to balance not overthinking things, basing it on reality and not being afraid of everything at the same time. So it, it's a definite balance that I have to do pretty much on a daily basis. 
Yeah, and I don't know why your friend said this. Uh, I can't remember the context, but I know one of your friends once said to you, I've actually told me this in conversation, but one of your friends said, you know, Denise, when is this going to stop? Uh, um, and you said to me, you know, I, I, or you said to them, you know, I can't stop. And they asked why. So I guess, you know, wh wh why can't you stop the work that you do? Is it because there's just so much more, there's so many more people to, to save? Because your friends and family obviously see this as being quite, quite dangerous work. Well, I think it's, it's, Again, it's it's that burn. It's that it's that. Uh, I don't even. I, I can't even explain it. And like I said, it it was the death of Norma, um, that lit a fire inside of me that I can't put out. There are times when I'm like, I am so tired. I'm not sleeping. I'm working twenty four hours a day. I'm driving from one end of the province to another in the same week. And I'm going, enough is enough, but I I, I can't. And I, I, I don't even have an answer for that question. So when my friends said that, um, I think they meant around, you know, me studying for courses and, you know, me writing, for example, the certified threat manager. And I was like up for like three months and didn't sleep. And they're like, do you really need to do that? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. do. And again, it's, it's not for that, you know, competing with anybody. It's, I want to be the best that I can be and, and try to help as much as I can. And for me, knowledge is power. And when I can um, take that power and, and, and try to, to, to help or, or move something into a direction that's more positive, that's, that's just who I am. I, I don't like, and I joke about, you know, I'll be 90 years old and I'll be, you know, getting driven around because I won't be able to see, but I'll be driving around. My son will be, you know, I'll be saying, okay, let's go, Cameron. You got to, we got a, a case to deal with. I don't see myself ever. I balance it. I do try to do creative things in order to, to balance that. So I get some of that energy out through that. Um, but no, I, 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 I think that sometimes, my friends and family just see me very tired or I'm stressed because I'm dealing with things that are big, although I keep yeah. most of it to myself because I have to. Um, I think they mean that in the best with the best intentions, but they also look at me and go, yeah, you'd last what two weeks without doing what you do. Because I, like do. A, I get the impression you'd be like a caged lion if you weren't out there. Um, oh, yeah, stuff there is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be safe I, for anybody. And it comes down to my earlier comment about, you know, um, that there is no, you know, um, how do you feel when you know that you're not going to be able to solve the world problem, but you, you just got to keep keep trying. And, and I can tell just by listening to you and reading your book and talking to you before is that, you know, you'll, you'll just keep going and, until the last person you can save has been saved. So, Denise, we started to sort of wrap up our time. You know, what's one of the things that you want to be known for? So, you know, Norma changed your your life and you've dedicated your career to threat assessment um what do you want to be known for i think i would want to known i think for being a change agent whatever the change may be i think that i have had an impact um in in, in individuals but i've also i think i've had you know impact in the in the world of of you know elder abuse in the uh, in the world of um, occupational health and safety and 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 uh, um, and just coming back to even the comment and not not and I'm not saving people they save themselves 
if I can point people in the direction or just even be an ear. And that's as I as I said in 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 my in my book, which is very much case related. You know, my 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 clients were my teachers. They're the ones that I I don't know. I, I don't profess to know everything. Um, yes, I can, you know, have credentials, but at the end of the day, I just want to be known as somebody that just tried to make a difference. And I, and if I can, you know, help young women to just say, you can do what you want it, you, you, you do, you need to put your mind to it. I never thought in a million years I would be able to write a book and it, <laughs> I did. And I, and I think that for me, it's, it's having goals and pursuing those goals. And if I can be a role model to, to young people to do that, um, that work, particularly women to get involved and to stand up for their rights, then I think I've done an okay job. I can yeah, and, 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 at that point. That's uh, great testimony, um, Denise. And you know, even when I read your book, there's so you know, I'm a big quotes person. I like writing down these interesting things that I hear. And you know, there's I just end on the last one with someone called Michelle Rosenfeld. And I didn't know who she was before. I had to go away and research her. But you know, you put within your book that Michelle Rosenfeld says that survival mode is supposed to be a phase, but helps you save your life. It's not meant to be how you live your life. And and that was a a really true thing. So um, you know, Denise, what's the best way for people to buy your book, learn more about you? Where where, where should they go? Uh, well, they can go deaf to my website, which is Coster Associates. Uh, pardon me, Coster Consulting Associates. You've got to get your website right. Come on, let's, let's go I back again. Go back again, Denise. Okay. Give it again. So, CosterConsultingAssociates.com. They can contact me through my LinkedIn profile. My book is now available on Apple Books. Uh, they can go there. They can order it um, on my website also. Um, so there's a, there's a number of ways um, they can obtain the book. If they want a hard copy, they can go through me. If they want a an ebook, they can certainly go through through Apple. Thank you, Denise. And, and I would definitely recommend it. Like I said, I've not been able to put it down. Refusing to accept the unacceptable by Denise Costa. You know, a great, fantastic read and charts her career and a lot of things that we've been saying. So I just want to remind people if they want to actually watch the video interview of me and Denise, you can see that on our, our YouTube channel, which is at Simon Osimo. Or if you want to listen to this podcast, it's on the Facebook channel or all the sort of main outlets. So Denise Costa from Costa Associates uh, Consulting, thank you for joining me today and sharing part of your, your journey. Thank you very much, Simon. All the best. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.